The latest from 7 News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome. Tonight, much-needed hope for hundreds of thousands in lockdown, a path out revealed. How long businesses will take to bounce back from the pandemic? We'll go live to New York ahead of the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and emotional first-hand accounts from people impacted on that world-altering day. But first, millions of people in lockdown New South Wales have been told what lies at the finish line when lockdown starts being wound back. Where's not an exact date, but the New South Wales Premier does have a threshold, restrictions lifting at 70% double dose. We don't want to put a specific date on that. It's really up to how quickly people get vaccinated and how many people come forward for that vaccine. But the freedoms will trigger uh, on the Monday after that 70%. All right, our reporter Tom Saker is in Sydney. Uh, Tom, good evening to you. Run us through what's changing when that target's reached. Yeah, good evening, Michael. Well, basically, it is a very long list of reasons to get vaccinated if you haven't already. I'll run through the list now. Uh, so outdoor gatherings are back up to 20 people. Also inside gatherings in homes with up to five people, uh, but not including kids under 12. Hospitality will reopen, as will retail, including critical retail for unvaccinated people. Hairdressing, nail salons, uh, gyms, sporting facilities, including pools, cinemas, galleries and theatres, outdoor facilities, including stadiums, race courses, theme parks and zoos will reopen with the four square metre rule or a maximum of 5,000 people. Up to 50 people can attend weddings and dancing is allowed. 50 also for funerals and eating and drinking at both weddings and funerals will have to be done while sitting down. Places of worship will reopen, but there will be no singing. All of that will be managed with COVID safe protocols. So masks will remain mandatory indoors, in public places and on public transport. Uh, the four square metre rule will be applied across all industries and activities. In hospitality, a two square metre rule will apply outdoors and drinking while standing can only be done outside as well. All of this will be done, of course, alongside QR code check-ins and by that time the New yeah. South Wales Services app will be able to tell you whether you are double vaccinated, making it hopefully easier to police. Tom, I know no one wants to think about this, but if there's a surge in cases in certain areas, what happens? Well, it is certainly not a one-way ticket to freedom, this roadmap. But if there are surges, uh, unanticipated surges or big spikes in COVID in certain council areas, the government said that they will absolutely lock those places down. And there was some debate last night in that crisis cabinet meeting between the Premier and Chief Health Officer about whether... The Gla whether Gladys Berejiklian has jumped the gun with 70% immunity. Kerry Chan had hoped for 80%. We shall soon see. Tom, the New South Wales Deputy Premier had a warning for regional towns, uh, many of whom are exiting lockdown this weekend, which is good news. But here's John Barillaro. If there is an active case in your community, you will go back into lockdown for a minimum of 14 days. That is the commitment that we've made to health, that it is important that we protect communities. Uh, one case is one case too many in the regions. Uh, all right, Tom, well, I, I guess it's dependent on cases, but how did the government choose which towns to release from the stay-at-home orders? Yeah, they chose the, the areas where there, have been no, where there has been no COVID since this latest outbreak, and those areas include Albury, Wagga Wagga, Tamworth, Coffs Harbour, Port Macquarie and Griffith. But the Deputy Premier is warning the people in those communities not to get complacent. Many of them, if there are any ch uh, traces of COVID, even before Saturday, uh, could be thrown back into lockdown. Michael? All right, Tom Saker in Sydney, thank you for that.
The New South Wales announcement is in line with the national plan, which outlined easing restrictions when 70% of adults are vaccinated. But Victoria's government's not necessarily on the same page. The situation in New South Wales is different. Um, we want to make sure that we don't get to that level. Um, I think they're, um, they're at over 1,100 people in a hospital. We're at 111. Uh, they're at levels of case loads that we want to avoid. Uh, we want to make sure that the uh, public health advice that we take is built around Victorian circumstances. Let's go to Christy Cooper, our reporter live in Melbourne. Christy, good evening to you. So what do we know about Victoria's plans for reopening? Michael, from midnight tonight, regional Victoria will reopen. There will still be strict restrictions there, but most businesses will be able to open their doors and welcome some customers back into their cafes, restaurants and beauty salons. Melbourne, however, is a different story. We're still waiting to hear exactly what that will look like. And Premier Daniel Andrews says there's a lot of work happening behind the scenes. They're waiting on some crucial modelling to come through to tell them what they can expect. But we have no idea at this stage exactly what that will look like. And businesses are frustrated. They say they need a plan, they need a date, they need something to work towards so that they can at least start to get things organised, even if it's just to look to know what that new COVID normal will look like. Uh, what we do know is that there will be some slight easing of restrictions once we hit 70% first doses in Victoria. That won't be business reopenings, with the exception of some construction there'll be more social changes so things like that five kilometer limit that we currently have is likely to be extended michael problem is the daily numbers uh, still aren't flash what can you tell us about the current outbreak in melbourne christy well, not flash is one way to put it. We had our biggest spike today than we have seen in over a year. 324 cases, massive numbers for us compared to previous days. A third of those were linked. Unfortunately, that leaves two thirds, over 200 cases that are mystery cases. The majority of those cases are also in the north. So authorities are now turning their attention to the northern suburbs. They're ramping up testing there with some sites with extended testing hours through until eight o'clock and they include in Keylor, uh, in Craigieburn and Roxburgh Park. There's also now a push for more vaccines to be directed into those hotspot areas. We currently have 2,166 active cases here in Victoria. At current projections we should be due to hit our peak at a similar time to Sydney in mid-October. At that point in time authorities believe we'll have about 800 people in a hospital. In happier news though, our vaccinations are really ramping up. We have passed 63% of Victorians who have had their first dose of the vaccination. And we are now expected to hit that 70% first dose target earlier than expected. Initially, it was due to be on about the 23rd, but we now are expected to get there earlier, Michael. You're right about that. That is some good news as vaccination figures. They need to keep rising though. Christy Cooper, Melbourne, thank Thank you for that. And Australia is now halfway to its 80% vaccination target. Over 40% of adults have been double dosed. That's 8.3 million people who are fully vaccinated. More than 311,000 people had a dose in the last 24 hours. In 54 days, that's the 2nd of November, 70% of Australians over 18 should have two jabs. And in 71 days, the 19th of November, 80% of adults are on track to be fully vaccinated. 
Well, as northern New South Wales leaves lockdown this weekend, it's only a half victory for residents around the Queensland border. Our reporter Sally Guy's live from Brisbane Airport tonight. Sally, hello to you. There are calls for the border bubble to be reinstated. Is that on the cards? Well, good evening, Michael. There are hopes this border bubble will resume and the Queensland Government and New South Wales Government are this evening in discussions around this and a decision on this is expected as early as tomorrow morning. But as we go to air this evening, at this point, the border remains closed. Sally, you've met with some families in some pretty tough circumstances right now. Seven News has spoken to families right up and down the country today. Parents separated from their children as more devastating border closure stories come out. One particular family from Dolby here in Queensland has a particularly devastating story. Mum, Jessie, Dad, Billy and their four-month-old son, Rocker. Now, Rocker suffers from spinal muscular atrophy. Their family taking him to Sydney's Children's Hospital to receive the treatment that that hospital is the only hospital in Australia that he could receive that specific care. But when the family was ready to return home to Queensland, they were told by Queensland Health they would have to separate in order to do so. They would be forced, Dad would be forced into hotel quarantine and at his own expense, Mum and Bob forced to isolate in hospital. This is despite an offer from Angel Flight to fly them directly toward their remote property. When the question was put to Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk today, she shifted the blame towards Queensland Health. Take a listen. It's absolutely tragic and you know, it should have been progressed faster. Queensland Health uh, knows they need to do better and they will do better. Now, late this afternoon, Queensland Health did grant this family an exemption to quarantine together. Michael, their story is heartbreaking, frustrating, but unfortunately not unique. It isn't, sadly. All right, Sally Guide in Brisbane Airport, thank you for that. Australia has officially withdrawn from Afghanistan after evacuating more than 3,500 people on more than 32 flights. Prime Minister Scott Morrison said the next phase of ending the war is a humanitarian program. Thousands of Afghans and some foreign nationals are still attempting to flee the Taliban regime. North Korea has paraded its full military might in a public celebration of the nation's 73rd anniversary. The unusual midnight display included hundreds of soldiers in hazmat suits. The parade was overseen by the leader, Kim Jong-un, who commentators' notes looked visibly slimmer and healthier. And the long-awaited fraud trial of Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes is underway in the United States. On the first day, prosecutors allege that the Silicon Valley businesswoman, quote, lied and cheated for money and fame. The 37-year-old is facing 20 years in prison, accused of deceiving investors, claiming her technology could detect illnesses using just a few drops of blood from a finger prick. The claims have since been proven untrue. Well, as the world prepares to mark 20 years since the 9-11 attacks, two more victims have been identified using DNA analysis of remains found at Ground Zero. Our US correspondent David Boywood joins us live from New York tonight. David, uh, good evening to you tonight. I mean, just quite extraordinary that it's remarkable uh, that that important work is still ongoing after so many years. Good evening, uh, Marsha. Yeah, it's an incredible uh, effort by these uh, technicians to actually get this far mm -hmm. down the line. And of course, it comes as a major relief to these families. Finally, a little bit of closure after almost uh, 20 years. But uh, these technicians, they have been using these advances in DNA sequencing and extraction to make these identifications. And uh, one of those people has been identified on the screen there as 47-year-old Dorothy Morgan. Now, she was a mother. Uh, she 
was an insurance company worker and she had been working on the 94th floor of the North Tower when it uh, tragically came crashing down on September 11. And uh, understandably, the news, bittersweet Mm. for her family. It was a shock. It was a shock. I think I just... Yeah, that's the only thing I can say. It was really shocking. It's like you're reliving it all over again. I know I am going to go through the process um, of collecting the remains. I am finally going to go to a ceremony. I have not been. So, yeah, a little bit of closure there for Dorothy's family. She was the 1,646th person to be formally identified through this process. But we still have to bear in mind there is around 1,100 people still yet to be identified through this process as well, Musha. Extraordinary that they're still working on it after so long. It's good. David, Saturday, of course, marks 20 years. How will the city mark the milestone? Yes, 20 years on Saturday here in New York. Look, it's going to be an incredibly solemn day. As you well know, these attacks still loom incredibly large over this city. There will be a number of ceremonies held on the day, including one at Ground Zero. US President Joe Biden uh, will attend that one. He'll also attend another one at the Pentagon and another one as well, a third in Pennsylvania near where Flight 93 was actually uh, forced down. Now, there has been a little bit of public pushback to Joe Biden's attendance at these memorials given the incredibly chaotic nature of the uh, United States' recent withdrawal from Afghanistan and the simple fact that a number of Americans still remain trapped inside the country. Some people are saying that this is a job uh, half done and that he shouldn't attend these ceremonies on the weekend. Look, he still will. That is the plan from the White House. And Musha, I have to just tell you, just walking around the city over the past uh, few days, this is a city still mourning what happened uh, 20 years ago. A number of memorials still uh, popping up around the streets, particularly around those fire stations. So a tough day for those victims' families and, of course, those first responders as well. Incredibly difficult indeed, all these years on. All right, David Woywood, thank you for that from New York tonight. We all remember where we were on 9-11, hour after hour, classrooms, offices and living rooms all gathered around TV screens to watch those unforgettable images. One of the many TV crews in New York that day, I witnessed the horror unfolding through the rubble and the dust on the streets of Manhattan. Here's a look back at those days. 8.46 on the morning of Tuesday, September 11th. As American Airlines Flight 11 veered off course and hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center, it changed the world forever. My cameraman and I were nearby in New York, reporting on the moment Leighton Hewitt won his first Grand Slam tennis title. Ladies and gentlemen, your 2001 US Open men's singles champion, Leighton Hewitt. We were on assignment covering a rare good news story. But that moment of jubilation, just 36 hours previously, suddenly seemed like a distant memory. Oh my God! Oh my God! Thousands of people streaming away from the scene, a panicked exodus. We began pushing in the opposite direction, moving against that human tidal wave. Sirens blaring, emergency services headed in the same direction. 
They would bravely charge into the stairwells of the doomed buildings. As we were getting our gear on and making our way to the stairway, there was a uh, heavy-duty explosion, and everybody just started running for the door. Everybody was trapped. Eventually, when the dust lifted, I saw some light and started screaming for everybody to go out towards the light. Many weren't as lucky. There is no question that we lost um, police officers and firefighters, and some that I know personally and all of us here know personally that we're very worried about. Once we were only a couple of hundred metres from ground zero, we started going live into the living rooms across Australia. I just remember I had to keep talking, describing everything I saw. No words could really describe the scale of what I was seeing and experiencing. This is now the terrible task at hand, emerging from the dirt and rubble and smoke. The fleets of ambulances, presumably carrying the many, many dead. Communications were down, mobile phones dead, most of the transmitters had been on top of the World Trade Centre, all other lines commandeered in the emergency response. We stayed on location for days, sealed into the area by the NYPD. They shut the island off, uh, they've asked people basically do not come to work today and even if they wanted to they're not letting them in. Again the subways, the bridges, the ferries, they've all been stopped, you cannot get in. You can get out but they're not letting you back in. So it's, it's a lockdown island essentially uh, and they, don't, they want it to stay that way for a couple of days. We grabbed sleep when we could on the pavement beside the satellite truck and just kept going live as that shell-shocked city began its very long recovery. You might even be able to see it over my shoulder here, uh, quite further down as the smoke is clearing. We haven't seen that before. The charred remains of what we believe is one of the towers. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. New York City, an invincible metropolis of eight million, had become a deathly village of muffled cries. Its residents brought to their knees in silent candlelight vigils. And all night we saw the flashing lights off in the distance in the Hudson River of the, uh, the ferries that were commandeered to take the dead over to Ellis Island and to the Statue of Liberty. Reflecting now, two decades on, the same disbelief and horror then as now. At 9.43am alarms were sounding across Manhattan, but a third plane, American Airlines Flight 77, was circling over the capital. It crashed into the US military headquarters, the west wall of the Pentagon. Jet fuel creating an inferno that collapsed part of the building. 125 military personnel and civilians were killed, as were 64 people aboard that aircraft. And from the Arlington County Fire Department at the time, Captain Robert Gray could see smoke rising from where the Pentagon had been struck. But when he arrived there shortly after with his team, it was like no fire he'd ever seen. Robert Gray joins me now from Wilmington, Delaware. Robert, good to have you on this show. Do you remember arriving at the Pentagon? Tell me about that moment. Um, it, it, was, it was staggering. Um, we had a job to do. We bust doors down try to find survivors. But when you, you face that building you're that close right after that plane had hit, it's hard to imagine how massive that building is. But the primary feeling I had was I approached that, I tried to block it, but it, it was, it was, I just felt evil. What do you mean by that? Um, imagine approaching command, 
um, getting everything together, all your gear, your team, talking with them and preparing to go in. But then before you even reach that, you see the building, the, the level of fire in that building, the smoke was staggering and it just, it just felt wrong. Mm. It felt like it was beyond any normality that we have experienced in the fire service. Well, but the thing that. that the thing that staggered everyone watching this, particularly at the Pentagon, was there just seemed to be no evidence of the plane. It had melted. It had vaporized into the Pentagon, gone straight into it, and just just blown up. Did you get a sense of of that? Did you understand that this was a passenger jet that had gone in? Oh, absolutely. Well, when we were walking up to the corridor that we entered the building, um, there were little bits and pieces of this plane that. When it basically hit the building, um, everything that did not make it into the building turned into debris. Mm. I'm talking landing gear. We found a full row of seats. We found the, the kids that were on a, a, a field trip on that aircraft. We found their backpacks. Goodness me. So it's there is so much proof that this was an aircraft yeah how did it impact you and, and all of the team that uh, your team that raced on in there that day to go into a building like that where all the hallways all the walls were tilted um the building was significantly you know compromised the plane went 750 feet into the building and destroyed all of the the columns that are normally concrete areas those were completely destroyed we were under that area when we were fighting the fire. It took close to three days to do that. Yeah. The emotional impact was significant, but you just gotta you gotta keep it in. You gotta keep it in. Um, but you can see it in the eyes of the, the team members that we had. I'll be honest with you, probably the best way to tell you how it affected me initially is I used to love horror movies. I've never seen one since. Well, you witnessed it firsthand, the worst horror movie that, the, that, the, that, that you could possibly see. I know that you're a strong advocate for uh, all of the first responders who suffered such profound you know, physical and mental effects. In fact, you're, you're on a ride right now, you know, helping them and, and doing that good support. But it's two decades on, Robert. I wonder how you sit there right now and reflect on the 20 years that have passed. One of the bravest things we can do is to ask or help and this ride is more about raising the num the amount of knowledge on this this is about changing the culture it is time to do this well you're doing a very good thing for yourself and for all the other people that you're, you're helping as well and it's fascinating to hear your first-hand experience 20 years on robert gray good to talk to you thank you good to talk to you too thank you very much Levon Kennedy was one of 10 Australians killed in the 9-11 terror attack. She was on her way home to Australia after the trip of a lifetime when the plane she was on crashed into the Pentagon. Her son, comedian Simon Kennedy, later wrote a book called 9-11 and the Art of Happiness. He spoke with Angela Cox. It's now 20 years since you lost your mum. How do you like her to be remembered? I'd like mum to be remembered. Angela's, um, uh, I guess, a humanitarian at heart. I mean, that was the kind of life she lived. She dedicated herself to 
the Australian Red Cross and you know, kind of the service of others and uh, not only bringing up two boys on her own but um, helping others where it really needed to happen and um, and I th think her legacy is, is that, is someone who, who gave a lot of herself. Two decades on, how has your perspective on 9-11 changed? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, people say, does it feel like a long time ago? Does it feel like yesterday? And, and both are true. Um, I mean, when it happened, I was this 26-year-old young guy who uh, had all these you know, big hopes and dreams for what he was going to do in the future and uh, never, never saw it coming. And here I am now. I'm a 46-year-old father of two. So my perspective has is, is changed now because I guess I'm looking at the events through the eyes of a guy who's, uh, I guess, survived a lot of, of hard times uh, and, and, and built, built a pretty, pretty wonderful life for himself. This is remarkable. You visited Guantanamo Bay in 2019 and you came face to face with a man named as the principal architect of the 9-11 attacks. What was that like for you? It was interesting. I was dreading the, the moment. I didn't know what that week in Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay would feel like. I really had no idea and I was quite anxious about it. But uh, when I got there, I, I found myself with five other 9-11 family members uh, from the US who I bonded with uh, instantly. And we had a really lovely time together, supporting each other. And then when we went into the courtroom, um, I guess it was nice to have someone have my back. And uh, when I stood there, I looked through the glass in the gallery at Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and I wasn't sure what I was going to feel. I didn't know if the 20 years or 18 years of work on myself I'd done would, would just unravel at that point. But I found myself standing strong and thinking, you know what, Simon, you've got a good life. You're a, you've got a good family, you've got a wonderful family around you, a beautiful wife and kids, and you're a lucky man. And, uh, and I thought, that man through there who had done so much damage to so many people and hurt so many people, I realised that that our intertwined journey, me and him, ended the day it started. And I started moving on, I guess, and building a new life. And, and he, was, he was not part of that. And I, don't, I didn't feel hate for him. I didn't feel rage because I'd left that behind. Um, there was no point carrying it forward. And when I saw him and I looked at him, I thought, I, I guess I've succeeded in that. Over the past few weeks, we've watched the chaotic withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan. So after 20 years of a war there, what have you made of that? You see what's happening there now and it's heartbreaking stuff. And uh, I know if my mother was around today with all of the ideals of the Red Cross running through her veins, she would say that this country really needs to open their arms to those people who have been displaced, as people who, who helped Australia in the conflict. Um, it is our duty to, to take care of them and offer them safe harbour. You have spoken a lot about resilience in the face of trauma, taught kids about it. What's the best lesson you can share with us tonight on resilience? I mean, there's a few things about resilience. Uh, and one is knowing and having, I guess, blind faith that this will pass, that the hard times will pass, knowing that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and you can't see it, but it's there. Uh, I think that's important to know, that, that you can dust yourself off and, and get on with it. Um, but I also think that resilience without gratitude for the things that are, are good in your life is, is just survival. 
And I think if you want to lead a good life going forward, you need to have gratitude for those things you do have and not focus on the things that you've lost. That's where, that's the art of happiness, I think. Well, thank you, Simon Kennedy. Our thoughts are with you on this 20th anniversary and thank you for speaking so eloquently on behalf of your mum. Thank you, Angela. As authorities diverted planes in the chaos, a tiny Canadian town became an unlikely port in the storm when 6,700 passengers from 38 planes descended on Gander in Newfoundland. Its residents welcomed them with open arms. And one of them was Diane Davis, who was a French teacher at the Gander Academy, and she joins us now. Uh, Diane, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Can you describe what happened when, when all of those people arrived in your town? Um. It was something that, of course, no one had ever prepared for, and it happened very, very quickly. And the word passed quickly, despite not having social media, um, and everyone helped. The, the basic thing is that everyone helped. As a school teacher, I spent four days at the school, day and night. I was there for 72 hours, but I was one of 60 teachers who were there to help with bedding, food came from the community. We installed extra telephone lines uh, immediately. The phone company did that as part of emergency measures so that these people could phone home. And as teachers, we sat with them beside the phone and had them write down phone numbers so that we wouldn't need translators for the operators. Mm. And um, watched them as they phone home and explained to their family not only trying to explain where they were. Many of them didn't know where they were in the world, but also reassuring their families that they weren't on any of the aircraft that yeah. had crashed. Extraordinary relief, and those phone calls were so important. I know you've said before that 7,000 people went from strangers to friends to family. What stories do you remember from that time? Um, it, it's really remarkable. Um, people, people still have contact with families and friends that they met at that time. I did work very closely with one of the pilots uh, from the Virgin Atlantic flight, and he returned a month later with money collected from his passengers. Goodness and man. he was here again on the 15th anniversary with his wife to remember what happened in Gander. Just extraordinary, and that's true bond and friendship and appreciation. I mean, the story has become a symbol of human kindness in amongst all of that horror. Um, kindness always resonates, but why do you think it still resonates with so many people? What happened in Gander was a multitude of sm small kindnesses. Thousands of people responded, doing only what skills they had. My husband took coaxial cable out of our house and installed a second TV at the school. Yeah. People cooked. People took people for drives. Uh, they provided taxi service up to the local stores. We treated them a little bit like tourists because we had beautiful weather. And the things that we are acclaimed for are things that are just very neighborly and easy and kind to do. And I often say the things that my mother taught me. Absolutely. Pure kindness, which is fantastic. And from the heart and selfless, you were helping people who needed help. Um, I, the plane, uh, the whole thing, the whole affair, rather, Diane, came about in a good story about Come From Away, uh, which in fact only opened in Australia just before all the pandemic hit, but it'll, it'll come back again, I'm sure. And that features a character based on you. 
Yes, and we were fortunate enough to be invited and flown to Melbourne for the opening. The character is a composite character of Beulah Cooper, who is a volunteer at the Legion, and myself, Diane Davis, and she's a bit of a saucy school teacher, <laughs> and she can think fast on her feet, yeah. and uh, we're, we're very much flattered by the representation and also very much aware that these characters who bear our names represent the thousands of neighbors mm. in dozens of communities who supported us during those four days so that we could support the passengers. Diane, you did a beautiful thing that day. It's been uh, remembered in this stage production, remembered in many stories and always will be. I can guarantee you that. Lovely to talk to you, Diane. Thank you for sharing that again. And come from away, the musical retelling of the town that opened for thousands of people. It had a record-breaking season in Melbourne. It also opened up in Sydney in June, but was forced to close its curtains during the lockdown. The musical, we're told, will return in the Harbour City when it's safe to do so. The road out of lockdown we know will be long, but the economic recovery will take even longer. Despite that, the New South Wales Treasurer is sounding very upbeat about the future. Here he is. In many ways it's been the worst of times, but the best of times are on the way. And today's announcement shows the pathway back uh, to our future prosperity here uh, in New South Wales. Uh, it's been a difficult winter, uh, but it's going to be an incredibly bright summer. Well, Network Finance Editor Gemma Acton's with me to have a talk about this. Gem, good evening to you. Hi, now, that was Dominic Perrottet. Uh, he says we've bounced back before, but will it be different this time? Yes, he sounded a bit optimistic, saying the best of times are still ahead. There were some very special conditions in place last time. Firstly, the level of support and how long it went for was unprecedented. JobKeeper was a lot more generous and went for a lot longer. Private support from landlords went for longer as well. So when people came out of the first set of lockdowns, they were still on big piles of savings and were ready to spend and a lot of what they bought was stuff that you don't need to buy again quickly like a new car or redo your home office or a big television. Also last time we came out of lockdown there were zero cases in the community. Now it's very different. If you are someone who is vulnerable, even if you've been vaccinated or you live with someone vulnerable or you frequently see somebody vulnerable, you'll probably be more selective about how often you go out knowing that there will be cases out there in the community and we have been warned to brace for a rise in cases. We don't have a definite reopening date. It's a ballpark figure. A lot of businesses are going to need a bit more time to reopen, aren't they? Yes, look, it's a good start. Uh, businesses do need a date to work towards, and it's also good because they can hold the government accountable to a date as well. Clearly, a lot more will need to be hashed out in the next six weeks. What happens when a case gets into a venue? Will workers need to isolate? Is there a role for rapid antigen testing and reopening offices and hospitality venues? When will overseas workers be allowed back in to fill some of these labour shortages? that we know are happening. So a lot to be worked out, but this certainly set the wheels in motion and gives a sense of urgency to making these plans. Now, it's not, it's not a complete reopening. There are going to be restrictions and all sorts yes. of limits. How is that going to affect different businesses and industry? Well, it's not just across different industries. It's also within industries. You think about a, a restaurant that has a capacity for 40 people. That's very different to a restaurant that has capacity for 500 in terms of yeah. what they can do. If you're a venue that has predominantly outdoor seating, again, that's very different to someone that only has indoor seating. If you look at uh, entertainment, some live events can have 500 people. Weddings can't have more than 50. So a lot of differences between different businesses, where they are, and the particular rules that apply to them. Let's talk about some of the money around all of this. I mean, th there's a question around what happens to the government support payments. 
when we have a definite reopening date? I mean, what is going to happen there? What's in store? Well, it took the government, both federal and state governments, uh, a lot longer to get going with support this time around. Big reluctance to do anything that was similar to JobKeeper. And you'll notice that when they first offered support. They've had to beef it up several times since as a crisis got worse and worse. JobKeeper rolled on for many more months after many of the lockdowns stopped. It's pretty clear that they don't want to do that this time around. So I think we can assume that uh, the taps will be turned off much more quickly than, than last time around. All right, Gemma, there's a, still a lot to work out with there all is. this, isn't there? All right, thank you for that. Thanks, Michael. With much of the country struggling in lockdown tonight, demand for mental health helplines is reaching record numbers. Australians are today being asked to reach out to friends and family on Are You OK Day? And tomorrow is World Suicide Prevention Day. John Brogdon's the chair of Lifeline Australia and joins me now. John, good evening to you. Thanks for joining good the day. show. Uh, look, I talked to you at a fairly dire time. I should ask you first, how are you going? I'm well, thank you, mate, for asking. And how are you? Yeah, we're doing OK. Uh, you know, all things given, we're doing OK, so thank you. Now, you've seen record calls to Lifeline in recent weeks, uh, John, extremely disturbing. Is it a silver lining that people you know, aren't afraid to reach out for help, that they actually are calling? It is. Uh, we've seen numbers we never dreamed we'd get in terms of average daily calls in the history of Lifeline. We never thought we'd get as high as we are. To give you some... Um, uh, objective on this just two years ago we were getting two and a half thousand calls a day mm. on monday for the first time in our history michael we cracked three thousand six hundred calls in one day mm. but as you say there is good news and that is this means people are reaching out they're not suffering in silence and we get a lot of people who call us michael and say not only is this the first time i've ever called lifeline i never thought i'd ever have to call lifeline and that's great. It's great that they're not at home, they're not suffering in silence, and they are reaching out and getting help in, in many senses for the first time in their life. I know everyone's circumstances are different, John, but is, is there a common theme, a common conversation that they're, they're sharing? Well, it's interesting. You know, we've been around for 58 and a half years, and interestingly, this, the reasons people call us haven't changed much. You know, it's very much about personal relationships. And what is accentuated a bit during COVID, of course, is loneliness. You know, when I hear lockdown, I also hear enforced loneliness for people. So that's a, a challenge for us. And what we're finding, as long as well as calls going up, we're also seeing our calls going longer. So that means people are spending more on the more time on the phone, which is a, another indication of the level of anxiety and stress and anger. We didn't get anger in COVID in the lockdown last year. We're getting anger this year because people are doing it much tougher. Yeah. There's no job keeper. Uh, and we thought we'd licked it last year, Michael. We thought we'd got through it. We thought we were on top of it, and we're back worse than we were last year. Yeah, exactly, and that anger is real too. It's shifted a bit this time. I've noticed that as well. Um, John, the PM mentioned his conversations with you at his press conference today. Uh, is the government doing enough to, to give enough support? Well, we needed some more money, um, and I sent him a text, and he said yes straight away. So what we're finding is governments realise that the outcome there are many outcomes many many um problems if you like even that come from the sort of lockdown we're seeing and one of them is people's stress and pressure and increased mental health and increased suicide attempts so with all of that in mind yet yeah, we we find the governments have been very responsive i'm pleased to say and i'm confident if i went back tomorrow and asked for more money for lifeline to help us do our job we'd get it again they do they do understand that there's a mental health pandemic going on at the same time as this physical health pandemic absolutely now we 
shouldn't forget about the enormous impact of suicide on loved ones, John. Now, this weekend, Lifeline has a special virtual way to remember those we've lost. Tell us about that. Well, uh, tomorrow is World Suicide Prevention Day. Uh, and what we do in Lifeline, we've been doing it for a number of years, is we have an out of the shadows event. And that really is symbolically bringing suicide out of the shadows, out of the darkness, out of the corners of our lives. We do it at dawn and we bring people out into the sunshine, into the dawn, and to think of new life and of renewal of life. We also have, if you aren't able to do a local walk in the morning, we've got a virtual garden that you can go to and post on that and post a message, a post a message of hope um, and also we can talk about grief as well but let's let's post messages of hope and hope that as we go on and into the future we see fewer suicides in Australia and we deal with people's mental health better and better and people are more and more able to live a life with mental illness and have a very fulfilling life. Gee, we've got some challenges ahead though, John, don't we, with this yes. pandemic and the impact and the mental health crisis, yeah. which is so real and, and widespread in Australia yep. at the moment. So, all right, all of your people manning the phones are doing a great job, as are you. So thank you very much for joining us tonight. John Brogdon, Chair of Lifeline, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Now, if you or someone you know is struggling to cope, you can call Lifeline 24 hours a day on 131114. Well, a change of pace, accused of uh, avoiding being served legal papers on behalf of his sexual accuser, Prince Andrew, is right now bunkering down at the Queen's Scottish residence. Our Europe Bureau Chief Hugh Whitfield's live in London. Hugh, good evening. So it's the Prince's second visit to Balmoral during the summer. What's going on here? Michael, yeah, it's the second time he's headed north to spend time with the Queen or hide out potentially at Balmoral. Now, in between these two visits, the last time he went, uh, he's, he's been essentially locked down at Royal Lodge on the Windsor Great Park, which is the home he shares with his ex-wife, Sarah Ferguson. And it's while there, it seems he's been actively trying to avoid the couriers who've been dropping by and being blocked by security. They've been trying to serve him these legal papers in relation to the civil lawsuit that's been filed by Virginia Giffray or Virginia Roberts as she was when she was 17 years old claiming that uh, she was sexually assaulted, raped by the Duke of York three times including here in London. Now while in Balmoral it's being reported that Prince Andrew had lunch with the Queen in a secluded cabin before Her Majesty uh, headed straight back to Balmoral Castle. Uh, Prince Andrew is there with his ex-wife Sarah Ferguson. They still maintain some form of of relationship. They live together in the same house, uh, although they're certainly not married anymore. Uh, and we are told that this was a planned second stay at Balmoral, but the timing and the circumstances surrounding it certainly seem pretty interesting. Well, Hugh, the Prince has denied these allegations before. What's different this time round? Yeah, I think the key thing to point out here is that he continues to strenuously deny the allegations. And you'll recall back at that, that infamous interview he gave with the BBC mm. a couple of years ago now, he even denied ever meeting Virginia Roberts as she was back then. There is a significant date approaching next week, Monday the 13th of September. It is the first time that this lawsuit will be heard in court. There is an initial hearing set down uh, for the court in New York. It will be a teleconference. It's unclear whether Prince Andrew's representatives would even be there, considering that they can't even have the papers 
has served on them at this stage. We do know that this is a civil case, so there's no chance of Prince Andrew going to jail, but he certainly faces considerable compensation costs if it is found against him. We know the FBI still wants to talk to him as well, uh, relating to their investigations into Jeffrey Epstein, Prince Andrew's late uh, friend, and his uh, ex-girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, who's coming up for trial uh, soon as well. And the Met Police here in London are still reviewing the uh, case that they had on the books for him against uh, against Prince Andrew as well. So it's all circling, <laughs> continuing to circle around yeah. Prince Andrew. And at the same time, there is still talk that he wants to return to royal duties, which seems pretty unlikely. Yeah, what's the bet? The, put, put some money on the fact that he stays at Balmora for at least the next four <laughs> or five days until the, until the Monday court action gets underway. All exactly. Right. Hugh in London, thanks for that. Now, Gemma's back with a look at the markets. Thanks, Michael. Risk off has been the name of the game across global markets for the past 24 hours. Drops on Wall Street overnight paved the way for a dismal session in Asia today, which saw local and Hong Kong markets closing around 2% lower. The US looks set to take the baton back tonight, with global growth fears continuing to crush investor sentiment, and all major US markets are primed for a lower open. Oil is, however, bucking the negative trend. That's as crude oil supply struggles to get going again in the wake of Hurricane Ida. More than three quarters of Gulf of Mexico output remains shut. And after sinking further overnight, the Aussie dollar is treading water right now, buying around 73.8 US cents. Michael. Thank you, Gemma. Well, for decades, Joe DiMarti worked on the crossing outside St Joan of Arc School in Inner West Sydney. Sadly, he passed away this month, and were it not for restrictions, his funeral would have been a packed house. The lollipop man was so beloved by students, their photos were placed all around the chapel during the service. They couldn't be there in person, but they would not let him leave without saying goodbye. Well, tonight's final frame is a service that has saved and changed countless Victorians' lives. Ambulance Victoria has marked half a century for its mobile intensive care ambulance, honouring the medics who launched the service. It started as a three-month pilot program with doctors on board the first bus. Now there are 600 MICA medics across the state. Andrea Wyatt was one of the first female paramedics to join. Well, now 20% of the service are women with female recruitment on the rise, we're told. MICA's progression and commitment to care is why it is tonight's final frame. Well, thank you for your company this evening. From the team here at 7 News, that is the latest. I'm Michael Usher. Have a good night.